Hello, people, and welcome back to episode two of Wildest Kruger Stories. We're quite excited to be here for the second time now. It feels more official then. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're excited to get episode two on the way. Can we call ourselves real podcasters now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let's, let's, when we get to episode five, I think, I think we, we can cross <laughs> that bridge. I'd say maybe like <laughs> 10 or even 100. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's been about a week since we first podcast and we've been quite busy doing a lot of different things. I think you a little bit differently than what I've been up to. Yeah, we haven't been together for like uh, a good few days or a good portion of this week, have we? Which is very, very unusual. It's for very us. odd. Yeah, normally we go to, we go on all these trips and all these tours and everything. We're always, always together. Yeah. And um, yeah, this week, just to fill you guys in, I got called quite last minute actually uh by a lodge in the Valkenfornen game reserve uh, they were short to guide and i went over to freelance for them for two days uh just four drives it was an amazing ecosystem to guide in very different i've spent my entire career or working career except for the small stint i did in dubai but we'll get to that a little bit later and I've spent my the bulk of my career in the Kruger area and going to see that ecosystem in the Waterberg was surprisingly amazing. Something different. So. Very, very different. I think, you know, for, uh, for example, the trees don't have thorns. Really? Yeah. A lot what? of the species of trees do not have thorns, which I found quite fascinating. That must be amazing. Then you can actually walk barefoot. <clears throat> Pretty much. Well, they are. It's, it's, very, it's a very, very rocky ecosystem, so... The um the sh- the the rocks are pretty sharp, so I wouldn't do that. But yeah, no thorns. Well, not no thorns, but minimal. Kruger ecosystem in general, you've got a lot of woody plants um that produce both spines and thorns, or different species that produce spines and thorns. Um, are we gonna get nerdy and, and explain what the difference between I, I a spine and a thorn so. is? I don't think so. I don't. I don't think so. Maybe not on our second podcast. Maybe going forward we can do that. But <laughs> don't maybe have not more now. people. Yeah, too exactly. <laughs> so, what sightings did you have? I had some really really cool sightings. I had um, a number of white rhino sightings. Um, well, Valkofun uh, is full of white rhino. Yeah, they it's kind of a safe haven for them, which is quite. Uh, they, it, it's difficult for poachers to get in through the vast amount of mountain ranges they got there um and then we also had uh, a black rhino sighting which was very very special nice um we had uh, a couple of elephant sightings and we had a beautiful lion sighting um well two of them actually um so yeah it was it was a good two days productive Awesome. And lions, how, how many was it? Like it was difficult to see because on Valkofon and you don't off-road. Um, it was the Western Pride. So I could count, five, I could see five uh, in each sighting. Three very close to the road. Very good visual. They actually just killed a bush pig. Um, really? And they were, they were feeding on it a little bit further or a little bit deeper in. A bush pig? Yeah, a bush pig. Yeah. Oh, and those wow. mountainous ecosystems, they're quite common. Well, I wouldn't say common, but they're there. I'm surprised. Like, why I <clears> sound surprised is because... I've never, I've never seen a bush pig. Never. Never. Wow. And I would, I would presume it was just a warthog. Like that is usually what, what it would be that they would be feeding on. But yeah, that's quite special. That it's yeah. A bush pig. Yeah. It was, I was, I couldn't see it, uh, but a couple of, uh, apparently the guide, um, one of the guides actually saw it happen. So he identified it as a bush pig and they were just feeding. When I got there, the, the, a couple of them were feeding about 15 meters off the road. But the ecosystem there, well, the Waterberg has gotten so much rain over the last couple of months that it's, the grass is still extremely high. So it was difficult to see them. We could only really see the individuals next to the road. And then eventually, once those um, individuals finished feeding, they came and joined the individuals on the road. So, yeah, we ended up having a, a phenomenal sighting. That's awesome. It was a nice being back guiding again. <laughs> I think, yeah, it was. Um, it, I was a bit, I think on the first drive, I was a bit rusty. Um, you, I think we take for granted how we get into, as a guide, we get into the, the, like a a repetitive motion of, okay, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going to do it. Read your guests very quickly. And, um, it's amazing as when you stop just for such a a lengthy period of time, like what, what I haven't guided for what, three, four months Mm. and, um, how, it, it throws you off a little bit to actually get back into that motion. And um, the guides out there listening, don't, don't take it for granted that you'll always be able to just kick straight back into it. It takes, it takes time. So today, 
I think we were going to dive into Craig's backstory and kind of how you ended up where you are today because we get that question a lot. Yeah, I think um, pretty much from all guests when we were permanent in the industry, I think every single guest asked, or well, 90% of the guests asked us, like, how did you get here? Because it is such a different lifestyle and such a, like, what do you call it, untraditional almost way, yeah, of, way of life and career. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not common. It's not the norm. It's a, it's a very different kind of lifestyle and people are often very interested in, in knowing how we ended up here. So, Craig, tell us your story. What, what was your first, your first what, what's your first memory of wildlife and the bush? Sure. Um, first memory is difficult. Um, I think actually, uh, not really. I think the first memory I have of Kruger is actually, believe it or not, being thrown through a window. Um, it was what? it was an open window, by my <laughs> godmother. Um, it's a it's an incredible story actually. So yeah, please I tell us more. <laughs> thrown through a window. It was by an open god- window. It wasn't a closed window. It was not abuse. It was it it was it. She was actually saving saving life. my life. Um, and I think the what I remember is my brother being carried in one arm by my godmother, um, at, and looking at the vehicle and seeing my brother dive into the window and that that is something i remember like it was yesterday i was about three years old at the time or three four years old uh and we were (laughs) we were stopped at one of these picnic sites for those of you who know kruger there's these picnic sites where you can get out and cook some food and i don't think it was a picnic site actually i think it was a viewpoint um also same thing and they were relaxing or looking at the view my parents and my godmother and my godfather and myself and my brother were playing with these bulldozers or like uh for those of you who don't know what a bulldozer is how do you explain a bulldozer who doesn't know what a bulldozer <clears throat> is but you mean a toy car yeah sorry not like an actual bulldozer i wasn't <laughs> I wasn't building roads at four years old uh but yeah it, these it's like a, a construction vehicle yeah but, but a it's... toy Toy uh, we were playing with these and like I said I couldn't I can never forget this day and a vehicle came past started hooting at us and said and my I, my parents said well who hoots in the Kruger National Park this is quite disrespectful we're trying to enjoy the view and our kids are playing and he wound on his window and he said hey listen to me there is a lioness walking down the road because these these viewpoints are not fenced in and he said Guys, get in your car. And obviously, pandemonium hit with my family. And everyone just ran towards the car. I remember being thrown into this window. As we all got into the car, I don't remember this, but this is what my mom and dad say. As we, as the doors closed, this female lioness that had obviously given birth quite recently, she was, she was lactating quite heavily. So she had cubs in the area and she walked past this junction where our car was facing. It was... It was, it's a pretty cool first story to have. Absolutely. I don't think everybody is that lucky to kind of grow up in the in the park. Yeah. Although you didn't grow up in the park, actually. No. You were there on holiday with your parents when this happened. Yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Johannesburg, went to school in Johannesburg uh, for the first 18 years of my life. But from a very, very young age, from like carry cot age, I was asking my mom the other day, when was the first time I actually went into Kruger? And she was like, no, you were in a pram or a stroller um and i had a little car seat and my mom said i was a nuisance because i would not sit still in this car seat i'm not surprised uh, yeah well, it's me probably the first time i was in kruger was just over a year old wow yeah so going forward i think we were coming to the kruger national park twice to three times a year um just for sometimes for the weekend sometimes for a week in the school holidays um yeah whenever whenever my parents could get leave at that stage and that would be in the self-drive area for those who don't know kruger yeah right, you guys would go <clears throat> on self-drives and you would stay in the rest uh, rest camps that uh, sand park south african yeah. national parks provides yeah so the main camps would you were you camping or were you guys staying in the house at that stage we were doing bungalows we, my parents only kind of pushed camping onto us uh, when we started to go into Africa when I was an early teenager. Um, it was just with, with small kids camping going to camping can be a little bit, um, well, it's like a one and my brother's three years old. I mean, so a one and a four year old, it's not the most ideal thing to be doing. 
So for those who don't know Kruger Park, I think we should just explain what the difference, like when, when you say you go in for a weekend to yeah. the park, driving around, I think people, like it's difficult for people who, who's never been to kind of, you know, imagine what that is. So just explain to people what what is the self-drives in Kruger National Park? And then maybe we must explain that there's also the Greater Kruger with the private yeah. reserve. So the Great, so yeah, it, it all falls under the Greater Kruger National Park biosphere um, or ecosystem, if you will. And it's all the areas that are unfenced um, within one large fenced area, which is about 2.5 million hectares. And um, in that area, you've got the national park itself, which is the self-drive area. So that's where all the main camps, and it's managed by the government, managed very well, in my personal opinion. Um, And the the Greater Kruger National Park is all the private areas where you have all the private luxury lodges where you don't drive yourself. You're not permitted to drive yourself. You get allocated a guide who takes you on safari and at the end of uh, well, that was my job and my career was I worked in the greater Kruger National Park but when I was holidaying as a child it used to be in the self-drive area of the Kruger National Park and then if if you go into the self-drive areas you can go for just a day drive if you're staying outside of the park and you drive in during the day and yeah, you day just visitor. you know drive around and there's tar roads and like very managed roads mm. so it's not it, like anyone can kind of drive there but with any kind of car and you yeah. don't need like a four by four or anything because the roads are very good and then you can also stay over in the park at these rest camps that we will probably be mentioning quite a lot yeah so you stay at these rest camps and it's self-catering but there is restaurants there and there's like a little shop and usually a nice view and some of them are on a river some of them you know are more in the bush but that's... Yeah, people tend to think Kruger National Park is roughing it. It's not at all. You know, it's quite it's quite established. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, compared to like Kalahari where we've been. Yeah, that was, but that was much... still very like comfortable, I yeah. think. But it was, it's still, it's very managed and it's very, especially mm-hmm. because you have people driving by themselves. Um, it There's gate times where you have to be in by like by a certain time because they don't want people driving at night. Yeah in the park uh, and all of those kind of things. So for anyone who's ever been to Yellowstone, from what I have heard, because I've never been myself, it is very similar to mm. that. It's, it's quite, Kruger, Kruger National Park is, is quite regulated and for, for good reason. You Absolutely. Know, you, it's for everyone's safety, uh, including people and animals and that of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, but I just thought we'd explain that because we will be pr- talking quite a lot about yeah, Kruger Park, absolutely, obviously. And, and the we different will, areas. Absolutely. And we'll be talking about self-drives and the rest <clears throat> camps. And we will get into the greater Kruger a little bit more mm. just now. Because that was going to be my next question. You obviously grew up with your parents taking you on holiday into the bush. And that's kind of where your love for the bush came from. Mm. Am I yeah, right? 100%. I think going three times a year from when you're one years old you develop a passion you're naturally gonna do i was never really well my parents were never really beach people they loved the bush Uh, they do now um they do they can appreciate the beach but they love the bush more i love that in south africa this is something that a phenomenon just just cutting in here that Mm. i've found in south africa is that you like everybody's like are you a bush or a beach person they do ask that yeah it's like it's like a thing you're either a bush or a beach person i've never heard that before obviously because we don't really have something we call the bush in sweden yeah but it's still kind of it's a funny phenomenon (laughs) that i find in south africa but yeah yeah i think um but yeah my family was definitely bush orientated we would go where we would go to the kruger twice or three times a year we'd go to the beach maybe once because in south africa for those europeans and americans listening um, the school holidays are very different. In Carolina, you would know you have a summer break and then a shorter break around Easter and December. Am I right? Yeah, and then a few. So in other South days. Africa, we had two and a half weeks in March, three and a half weeks in July, two weeks in August, and then six week long break in December. That's so so it, weird. it gave you it gave you four opportunities to go away. And my parents, I was very fortunate. My parents would want to take us away pretty much every year. Oh, every every holiday. So then you would go to the bush mostly? We definitely do the bush mostly. 
sometimes we do lo- something more local in, in Johannesburg, closer to Johannesburg, but there's also national parks there. We'd go to like Pilansburg, for example, mm. which is also a beautiful national park. That is closer to Johannesburg, closer for those to Johannesburg, who don't know. Yeah. So you obviously developed a love for the bush. Did you know from a young kid that you wanted to become a guide and work in the bush? I knew I wanted to be in the bush. Um, I think my my love for guiding came at a later stage, I would say early teenager. Um, but so going back, when I started to develop a love for the private reserves that we spoke about, was I was about seven the first time I went to, I know we said I'm not going to mention names, but they presented me with a very, very important opportunity that I will get late get to later in the podcast, but in Coral Bush Lodge uh, in the Northern Sabi Sands. My, we, my godparents or my godmother and the owners of Coral Bush Lodge in the Sabi Sands are very good friends. And we... We would holiday there every now and then. I'm not saying every year, but, you know, every every couple of years. And that's where my, my passion for the private reserves and guiding, because there you were with a guide constantly. You weren't driving with your parents and just kind of doing a, a little day trip and talking nonsense in the car and hitting your brother and having your <laughs> brother abuse you. Uh, but it was, it was more game-viewing orientated and knowledge orientated. And I remember at one stage looking at this man that was a guide and going, wow, this man is so clever. And then looking at the tracker on the front of the vehicle and being like, wow, this guy just spent an hour tracking down a leopard and found it with a kill in the tree. And I was that, that was our first leopard sighting. I was seven years old. I'll never forget it. He tracked this leopard for an hour, found it, the safari female for those serious safari lovers you will, and people that have been to the Sabi Sands or have been to the Sabi Sands before, they would know of Safari. She was a famous leopard in the northern sector of the Sabi Sands. And we found her, and that was the first leopard I ever saw. And I remember looking at that man that I just tracked down that leopard, and I was like, teach me. One, teach me. Life. Teach me. <clears throat> and that was one of the first, that was one of the first, like, almost mind-blowing experiences in the bush for me. And that was like, I want to be here. That also brings back to just... I just want to explain to anyone who who don't know that that is a very that's the big difference between going to the private reserves and driving yourself in Kruger. Absolutely, and that's why there's also huge price differences in staying at those different places. Obviously, you said you guys were lucky that you had had friends uh, yeah. or family friends that owned that lodge, and that's that's a fantastic experience. Um, but that's just just so if anyone's wondering, that is the big difference between when you in. In the self-drive part, you it's kind of like being on a road trip and you just drive around yourself. And if you find things, you find things. But in the private reserves, you have the possibility to, one, you have a guide and a tracker that, you know, is there working for you and making sure... And are experts in the bush. Exactly. And then you also have the possibility of, of actually finding animals in a completely different way than, than yeah, you the have self-drive the, area. Yeah, you have the ability to off-road. Exactly. Um, and, you know, you can drop your tracker off. He can walk through the blocks to kind of potentially because that's their job and their function uh, as a tracker and yeah it was just it was it was a mind-blowing experience something i'll never ever forget and then as as i moved on we'd go to uh, to and coral every couple of years it was just it was just amazing to see uh, how the guides worked how the trackers worked, how the lodge functioned and it was fascinating Mm. to me and then and did you feel then you said obviously like that you thought I was really cool and everything, but you didn't feel then like that's that's exactly what I want to do. Like I want to be the guy, I want to be the guide. In the early teens, early teens, I felt that way. Mm. Um, early teens, I was like, this is this is incredible. Like I want to do this. I want to do this. And what? So what did you do to start working towards that dream? My parents were incredibly supportive. Uh, they wanted me to do an accredited course um, and go study. So before that, actually, when I was still in school, we I would there's a couple of companies that would in in the Kruger area uh, that my that I got to know quite quite well, and sometimes they would just invite me for free, and I would spend time with the guides in the park and stuff. I was very fortunate growing up, uh, and my parents would buy me books and all sorts of um, 
all the utensils to actually start this process. And I think at about 17, um, my mom got me my first Vagasa books so that I could start reading through, you know, all the, de the details of becoming a field guide and how to do that. And we even went once when I was about 16, we went to a place, they were doing a talk. And I remember I was going to do like a junior field guide course at that age, but I couldn't. I couldn't get, uh, the, I, I can't remember why, maybe a sporting tournament or something. Yeah, I, I just couldn't get to that, that course. So I did, I did the whole self-study thing. And then eventually, at 18 years old, I became a student at the lodge where I'd been going to since I was six years old. So that's quite a cool story oh. uh, that I started. I was the bartender and um, I, I did all the odd jobs, you know, well, and then when there was a, when there was an opportunity, I could jump on in the left hand seat with, um, with, with the guides and go on game drive. And that's where I developed a passion for photography because I was left hand seating. And that was at 18. Then um, I was based there for six months. And that was the point where they were like, okay, my, my parents were like, okay, if you can be out here for six months, it means you really want to do this. So then we, we go and, and send you on to another course. So. And what yeah. course was that? Well, that was eco training. Yeah. Tell so, us more about eco training. <laughs> eco training was a, it's a course that is, it's a year course um, of, Basically, where you're covering all sorts of stuff like basic birding, and um, animal behaviour was a big was a big module there. Grasses, botany. I'm trying to think of all the modules now. So many. So for those who don't conservation know, management. For those who don't know, uh, what you were studying then was your Fagasa level one, correct? Well, yeah, but with a whole lot of add-ons of different qualifications. Okay. Um, but the big and trails. To be able to guide at one of these lodges, you need to have a guiding qualification. Yes. And the most popular and common one is Fagasa. Yeah. There's different, there's different, there, there's different qualifications. I mean, it all goes through CASITA, which is the national qualification board, uh, which is run by the government. And that's, um, yeah, it, it, it's run by CASITA. So for when you went on this course, you were learning to become a guide, basically. This was my guide training. I've done a whole lot of other things, but obviously we want to focus on my guiding. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to keep people here for four hours. <laughs> so we're focusing on my guiding qualification that I that I acquired at, at nineteen, and um, yeah. So they after this big course, I went back to Nkoro to do my practical. Um, at Nkoro Bush Lodge and they, they could sign me off. And then I moved, once I was fully qualified, I moved into, I had a bit of a, I had a bit of a struggle because I wasn't, you can only legally guide at 21 and I was now 20 and I was sitting quali fully qualified, all the bells and whistles from a qualification point of view and not being able to guide guests. It was one of the most frustrating things in my life. And we've met a lot of people that's exactly same, yeah experience. and oh like like you've heard I've I've sat there and said, you know what, just just tough it out. It's it's a difficult one, but I've been there. It's it's difficult. Uh and then I moved to a property I'm not gonna mention their name because I think I mentioned in the last podcast I did guide illegally. Um, which it's not an uncommon thing and they presented me an opportunity I pounced on it and I went on to guide there but it was only like four months before I, I got my PDP at 21 years old and I've heard funny stories from that place because you because you <laughs> it was kind of like a little bit just, of a dodgy thing it, you yeah I just you, passed on the first opportunity. Yeah, and you, and and obviously they were doing something that they were really supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's why we're not mentioning any names. But you were staying in a a very nice room. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. It was like next to the kitchen or something, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a kitchen room, and this room was about two meters wide. Wait, no, yeah, because it was a single bed, and then there was just enough space for a bedside table and then there was a bathroom where if I was in the shower I could put my hand just slightly out and touch the toilet like it was tiny um, and you know what it just shows you like how much the opportunities you have to take when you're when you're young 
Um, and it, you know, I, 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 cause it's a, it's a funny story. I never, I never ran out and said like, Hey, can you imagine like these people look what they make me live in? Like, no, it wasn't that it was an experience. It was a funny story. You uh, wanted to be in the bush and exactly throughout. And I'm sure we're going to hear similar stories from the people that we're bringing onto the podcast yeah. because throughout the guiding industry, like this is basically how you, how you get into it. Like, yeah. You know, there it's not a, it's not a, what do you call it, Silk Road, or do you call it that? A Silk Road? Oh, sorry. Why would you call it a Swedish? I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, it's not... It's not a walk in the park. It's not a walk in know? the park. You you have to, like, really fight from the bottom to to get somewhere in the guiding industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of people that, or a lot of uh, guides that inspire to, I want to work five star. I want to do this. I want to, woo. Just take it easy. You, you're going to need to work hard to get to those positions. And yes, you might find that the five-star properties that are willing to give you um, a, a job straight out of training, they're going to be v- quite badly paid. And um, you're probably going to work long, long, long hours. Like in the industry in general, you do work long hours. But um, those properties that are going to take you straight out of training. But I'm not telling guides not to do that like you must because i think you must learn to work hard if i can encourage anyone they must they must become a student first as well i think it's just important to remember that uh, you don't you don't just do a course and then you land one of the best jobs no no I there's worked. definitely you you need to work hard and no. prove yourself absolutely uh, so anyway, to move on, you were there for four months, you say, and that was literally just to wait out for you to get your, your pdp pretty much. as it's i called. feel bad I feel bad because yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, you know they, they, give you they invest in you, they invest in you. They say, oh no, no we'll let you guide illegally, and um, then yeah, I, uh, but you know sometimes you gotta you gotta look up. Also, don't want to live in a room like that. Yeah, I mean, what do they expect? <laughs> so yeah, because you were waiting for to turn twenty one and to get your PDP for those who who are not South Africans. That's your license to be able to drive. Uh, what do you call it? Drive. Private people? driving permit. There you go. So you can drive clients or more than four people in a car you can drive uh, pe- other people who aren't like your family yeah like a yeah. public transport kind of there you go thing. public transport yeah. so you turned 21 and what was the next place you went to i went to a, a lodge in the concession or on a concession in the heart of the Kree national park and that was one of the most incredible experiences ever you know as a 21 year old that had been going to the Kruger national park since he was one years old to now have a job a nice room <laughs> in the heart of the Kruger National Park was... Sorry, just come explain to people because we, we're explaining a lot in this, in yeah, this yeah. episode so that everybody knows what we're talking about. You mentioned concession. What is different from... What's, what's the difference between a concession and a private so, area? Concession. In 2001, parts of the actual national park that are run by the... The, the national park I mentioned owned. earlier are owned by the government. They... Uh, mapped out certain areas of the national park itself and they decided to auction them off but only lease them so people would then auction uh, they would put them up on auction for a 20-year lease with the option to renew the lease for a for a second 20 years which is now mo- most of the concessions have done um, or some of them have got a reprieve from COVID for those years that they lost but it's exactly what I just said. It's pieces of the land that are now privately run, but still owned by the Kruger National Park. So in the contract that was signed, where the greater, where the private reserves in the greater Kruger National Park are more, it's their own private property. They just open to Kruger. And they own the There's land. There's no fence. They own the land itself. They can do whatever they want. In, on the concessions, you abide by Kruger National Park regulations. And also there's there's a contract that is signed. So you can, on the concessions, you actually can off-road, but only to a certain extent. So for example, like 250 or 300 meters, then you've got to stop off-roading and maybe find another access. You can only have X amount of roads on that concession. So that's what a concession is. It's still government owned, but run privately by um, another lodge, by a lodge brand. So you got a job at one of these concessions. Correct. And, and what was so special about this job? I think you... 
uh, I had an amazing guiding team. I think one of the, 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 the first property I worked at, I didn't have a guiding team. I had a manager. I was the only guide. There was a guide that guided when I was on leave and he was the manager. So it wasn't really a guiding team. Here we are. It was a, it was a biggish lodge um, run incredibly well by the management team that are still there to the day and running it very well, I assume. And I think the guiding team I just had there was something special. I, I think it was just, we, we clicked um, and we just, we, we got on incredibly, incredibly well. And we worked so well together because we had, the concession was 15,000 hectares and we had, I think eight guides, maximum amount of vehicles out would be about six. So it, it's big area to cover with six vehicles but we would make it happen and we would all be working for, for a common goal, not necessarily everyone out there being selfish. You know, we were working together as a team because we knew times could get tough with only six vehicles on 15,000 hectares. For those of you who don't know the conversion, that's 150 square kilometers. So it's big area. So what you would do was you would go out, all these six vehicles would go and they would cover different areas. And mm. if they found something, they you guys have radios on the vehicles. Yes. And you would radio the other vehicle and say, hey, I've got this elephant. Yeah. And then the other vehicles would be like, cool, then I can also go and look at that elephant because I haven't found anything in my area. Exactly. So we would generally, I don't think it would, be, but I know you just used an example, but elephants not so much because they're quite common. But yeah, you'd go and you'd, you at lunch when we all sat down and had lunch together, which was quite cool, it was social. Um, and we would chat nonsense and we'd eventually do route plans and you'd say, okay, cool. I'm going to do, uh, access Makutla or you, I'm not going to go through the road names. No one knows what those <laughs> are unless they've actually guided there. Uh, and then I would go and then we'd all have our different areas. No one would ever be like tailgating someone and driving behind someone else. And that's how you'd cover areas. And we were actually incredibly successful with game viewing. Because of that, everyone kind of said, okay, I'm going to work this area. Okay, uh, then if you're going to do that, I'll work that area. And we all kind of came together and we'd spend half an hour, 45 minutes working our own areas before we crossed into different other areas in order to ensure that you would actually cover that area. Because I think a very common misconception for people who's never been on safari before mm. is that there's animals around every corner. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of animals in Kruger, 100% compared to Europe, for example. And you you will see animals, but then there's also, there's a difference of, of seeing animals as as much as I love zebra and the impala and everything. You, you don't want to come to Africa for a safari and only see yeah. zebra. But you would like to see the big five, obviously. Yeah, um, I hate it. But yeah, it is unfortunately what people want. Mm. At the same time, I do get it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you, and that's what, what I'm trying to say is that that's what you guys would be looking for. Yeah. Uh, not just the big five, but just cool animals no. in general. Like you've got things like cheetah and wild dog that are also really They're very special. cool as well. It's the problem is, I suppose, now we're derailing a little bit, but the the obsession with the big five. And oh, that's, that's what... I didn't mean I, I hate the, the big five. I meant that I, I hate that what the big five has done to the safari industry. Because yeah. people come here with one mindset as it's like a competition and they tend to forget about the beauty that is the rest of the ecosystem. 100%, 100%. But um, what I mean... Uh, what I mean is that you guys were trying to find the mo the yes. um, the more rare animals that are more difficult to find because, well, you wouldn't really go tracking zebra. No. Because you most of the time will see zebra. You'd be surprised in winter we would struggle for zebra. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so that's what that teamwork was about. That's it. That's it. I remember in winter you're talking about zebra. I remember we used to. But again, that's what the meeting at lunch was about. It was it was saying, okay, guys, listen. My guests have not seen Zebra. They've been here three days. Um, if someone does come across, just give me a shout on the radio. And your mates would do that. They'd be like, hey, Craig, got your Zebra here. Come this side. You know, not, not <laughs> like that and not as casual as that, more professional. But that that's how we would help each other out. And um, it was normally to cover the different areas was in order for the big game. Mm. Um, the leopard, lion, cheetah, wild dog, uh, rhino. And yeah, my big five. Cool. So did you guys only do game drafts at this lodge? <laughs> we did bushwalks. Um, and what's and, a bushwalk to explain to people? Uh, so we did two different types of walks at this specific establishment. Uh, we did bushwalks and then we did trails. Now, the difference is a bushwalk is about 45 minutes to an hour where you're talking about the smaller things. 
Um, you're not necessarily tracking or trailing any specific animals. It's more of a stroll in the park. More exactly, you know, <laughs> for people that are yeah that that don't feel they're up for a three four hour five hour walk to go trailing the big five. It still gives them that little thrill of oh we're we're in the bush ah, because I think a big man with a gun. <laughs> Yeah, you you laugh and you make jokes, but people actually do say yeah, that. Yeah, well... But yeah. it's also, I think, to again, to explain to people who haven't been on safari before, being out in the bush, you are... On safari, you are 99% of the time in a vehicle. Yeah. And to be able to get down and, like, sometimes you'll do a bit of a leg, leg stretcher, maybe, but... To be able to get down on the ground and actually do more of a walk and seeing the smaller things is so special. And being able to see those tracks and poo and you know, yeah, no, all, all, all of those things. and specific like nice flowers and all of that. That is very special to do. And that's what a bushwalk is about. Yeah. And then the, the bushwalk, yeah, exactly what Carolina just mentioned is all of those smaller things. And then you eventually come back to the lodge and you have breakfast or you do it after breakfast. Now, a trail is generally substituting a game drive. Generally, you would aim to do it in the morning. The afternoons get a little bit warm uh, and you want to you want everything to be fre- fresh. So you do trails that three, four hours and you would get your guests up a little bit later than game drive because you want a little bit of light. You don't want to be starting in the dark. You know, generally game drive, you're starting so early in the morning that it's still a little bit dark. You don't want to be bumping into an elephant, lion or leopard in the dark on foot. That's something you do not want. So you wait for a little bit of light and then you're off and you start you start walking on those massive game paths uh, that are generally made by elephants and rhino in those areas. And um, you follow those and wait till you can pick up some fresh tracks of something. Sometimes you pick up fresh tracks of lion, uh, rhino, elephant, buffalo, and you point it out to the guests. But that's the that's the entire kind of goal of the trail is to, is to actually go out and experience big game on foot, not getting as close as you can, not tickling their nose, kind of just, you know, trailing, getting to a point and saying, oh, you know, nine times out of ten when I was tra- trailing elephants, you'd see them from a while uh, while away, maybe 50 to 100 meters. You say, hey, guys, look, we found the elephants. That's a successful trail. I'm not going to push the animal. Um, every now and then you get you you get into a bit of a tricky situation where you've gotten a little bit too close uh, just because you didn't see the animal. Maybe the bush was a little bit thick. But that's when your training comes into into play, um, knowing your escape routes and knowing your your um, your wind direction. Because you do need specific training f- to be able to guide. Abs- in that it's way. not it's not easy. Uh, remember, we as a trails guide, your main goal is to do pretty much walk like you don't have a rifle. We do have rifles, but. That's lost. It's a last, last, last resort. No guide wants to use their rifle. That's not what we're there for. We walk so as if we don't have a rifle. And that is the last, last, last resort. And we're trained to think like that. So for anyone who hasn't been on safari before, just to explain how special it is to encounter animals on foot and how how big of a difference it is encountering them on foot compared to, to a vehicle, you've one, you've got the huge difference of the way that it's like it feels for you to see an animal on foot. You feel much smaller seeing them on foot than when you're in a vehicle. I feel very like, I feel like I'm in like my little safe bubble when I'm in a vehicle and, and you can get yeah. super close without, without me being scared, unless it's elephants, but I'll talk about that. But anyway, I have huge respect for elephants, but it's fantastic seeing seeing an elephant, for example, up close from a vehicle, but seeing them, if you're on foot, even seeing them like 200 meters away is is incredible and it makes your heart go crazy. And also, I think the important thing that I want to say here is that it makes a huge difference to the animal's reaction to us when we are on foot compared to a vehicle. With a vehicle, they don't see us as a threat. And that's why you can get very close to animals from a vehicle. And a lot of people on my Instagram will ask me questions about this, but this is the important thing to remember is that they are used to the vehicles not being threatening, not being dangerous, and also not being food. They are just they just see the vehicles as like some something that's just standing there and they don't really, most of the time they don't really care about the vehicle. Uh, sometimes they do, but we'll get into that. But most of the time they don't really mind the vehicle at all. While when you're on foot, 
they see that two that two legged thing, which is a human, and they will ninety nine percent of the time be scared of that, and that can result in in different reactions that we don't want. Yeah, I think it's it's not it's that they are they are skeptical of that because they don't see it as often in the Kruger National Park. They're seeing vehicles a lot more frequently than they are seeing these little two-legged things. So that is it's something that is unusual uh, to the animal. So they generally, when something is is unusual to an animal, it puts up its defenses. It's either going to run away act aggressively or freeze a lot of these um solitary antelopes you'll see them in the bush and they just like stand still like a little statue and then you'll stop you'll have a little gaze and then off they go um darting off at very very quick quick speeds so yeah it's a very very different experience um and i encourage people to do it um obviously if you're fit enough and i always say if you're able to climb a tree things can go wrong in the bush on foot and i think it's very important for us to just realize and take into consideration and respect the animal space don't push the animal generally once the animal knows that we are there and they've showed a little bit of ugh, a few behavioral characteristics of them noticing that you're there potentially getting a little bit a little bit nervous that's when you cut it and you kind of say right this animal knows we're here we're not going to try to get closer we're done the most ethical approach on foot is getting in and out without the animal even knowing you're there. Those are incredibly difficult, but they are possible. So yeah, that's pretty much a bushwalk and a trail in a nutshell. That's very interesting. It is fascinating to talk about. And I think we will be get, getting back to those kind of things more mm. because there's definitely stories and... Yeah, um, dangerous, en- <laughs> dangerous encounters. Dangerous encounters. And that is, you know, um, that's the dangerous life in Africa, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So you were there for how long at that property? Two years. Two years. And then what happened? I, you know, I think it was, it's like guiding, just to, to let you, just let the listeners know, guiding, you know, a lot of, there's two types of guides. Some guides, they want to stay at a property for a long time, climb the ladder, uh, especially when they're young, uh, generally 30 and below. They And then there's others that are like, I want to see as many ecosystems as possible so for me it wasn't necessarily ecosystems it was as many areas in the greater kruger region that i wanted to see so two years i felt you know the the management there respect them still to the day uh, were incredible um and the the head guide was not leaving any time and the senior guides were not and i was still quite young so i wanted to go experience more so i then went back to the sabi sands uh, game reserve and guided there for a couple of months that was also incredible, as we all know, the Sabi Sands is the Sabi Sands. For those of you who don't know the Sabi Sands, it is renowned for if you kick a leopard, if you kick a tree, a leopard falls out. If you kick a leopard, <laughs> we don't kick leopards. Uh, it is an incredible area for predators. Um, it, it, it's just, I think what my record uh, leopard sighting was, I think I got seven in one, one, one game drive. And you do love leopards. I do love leopards. It's my, it's my favorite animal. So from a predator viewing point of view, it was incredible. And then, so from there, it was, a, I went to the Sabi Sands for a couple of months. And um, then I moved, after that, I got an opportunity in Dubai. And because I was, I was young enough, um, to, it, was, it, it was something that, so out of the ordinary, um, to kind of just take up a position like that and, and I approached my head guide and I said, hey, you know, this has come up. And he was like, Craig, you have to take it. You have to go. You're young enough to go and explore the world. Go and enjoy. And I went over there for for an 18-month contract. And um, I, got a, I got a camel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got a, I did a, I did some horse riding. Now, that's, an, that's, that's quite an interesting story is how I actually got the position. That is was. a very funny story. Because that's also <laughs> that's how, how we, we met. met. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um... For the first time. The first time. We didn't start dating at that point. No, 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 no. What... That was just... Well, I think we, we bumped into each other for two days. Yeah, something like that. So this... The story starts as... I, I, I didn't think... I applied for this position in Dubai and didn't think I was going to get it. I was young. I can't... 
remember quite how old I was, but I was under 25. And um, I sent this email and a couple of days later, I got a reply saying, hey, listen, we want to interview you. So I was like, okay, cool. Um, and I thought, you yeah, know, normally you do an interview, chat, see how the guy talks and that's kind of it. Strengths, weaknesses. They did probably a full 50, 55 minute interview, corporate kind of vibe. And I was like, woo. This is intense. So we had a, we had a good, quite a, I'm still in touch with the, the guy that did, uh, did my interview. <laughs> and um, I then, there was one particular question that I got stuck on. It's because I really wanted this job, you know, go work abroad. And he asked me, he said, Craig, uh, horse riding is quite a big, a big thing at this job. Um, what is your, what is your horse riding skills uh, on a scale of uh, one to 10? And I said, no, about a seven or eight out of 10. Meanwhile, I'd actually only ridden a horse about seven or eight times in my life. And I thought to myself, you know, young, naive, arrogant, uh, a, little bit, a little bit stupid. How hard could it be? So I picked up the phone to a mate and I said, hey, listen. A mate who owns a horse yes, safari. a horse safari uh, what, place. What, volunteer kind of yeah. place. Yeah, where Carolina was. I didn't realize that at the time. But I then... Uh, I called her and I said, listen, man, I've just told them I'm an 8 out of 10 on a horse. Can you make me an 8 out of 10? She was like, we can try. <laughs> but she asked, when, it, when are you going? And you were like, in two weeks. She was like, we can try, yeah. So I went out to Hoodspray to um, uh, this uh, what equestrian volunteer program yes. area that she owns. And I... <laughs> I began to realize how difficult it is and how much of a skill it is to ride a horse. So let's just say by the time I left it, I was not an eight out of 10, but fake it till you make it, hey? I suppose. <laughs> and I got there and they picked it up immediately, but they were like, ah, oh, don't stress, we'll teach you. And um, yeah, and so so that, that, that chapter in my guiding career Started. started and it was amazing i'm not gonna dive too much into it we can maybe do another episode on how it was and well i guess we we'll probably have a you have a lot of stories from dubai lots a lot lots. of famous people you've guided because it was a very yeah. fancy lodge that very famous people would go yeah. to and and a lot of funny stories from... about like just randomly because it was a very different guide job hey? yeah like that random the baby camel just <laughs> coming not not knowing that this camel was pregnant and the baby camel just arrived one day. But those are the kind of stories I can tell. And, but it was a very different guide job uh, where you did much more than just guiding. In, like in South Africa, you would be guiding in the bush and you would, you know, it was drive desert, around. It was desert orientated. But it, also that wasn't the only thing that you were doing. Yeah, there was other stuff. There was, you know, we did a lot of uh, falconry um out on the reserve where we each got we each got our falcons or each guy had a falcon and um it was it was quite incredible uh the falcons itself that they actually i wouldn't say they got to know you i think i still think to the day it was more a food <laughs> food based relationship i'm hungry okay cool i need you um but they were incredible birds so learning um how to bond with them and how each individual bird uh, reacted was quite incredible uh the camels were smelly <laughs> and fun and obviously the rest of the game on the reserve was equally as amazing but and then the horse riding the horse riding arabian horses wow they are they are wild aren't they they are really wild they horses. are yeah it was it was crazy i remember we were myself and brett he was and a very very experienced horse rider and we had two of the... This is later on. So I was like now... I was probably now an 8 out of 10. Um, this was probably like two months before I left. And we took two of the difficult horses to ride out. Because we didn't want our guests to ride those particular individuals. Because they were unpredictable. And um, I remember we were on this, this sand road. And we just... These horses just opened up. And because they were ex-endurance racehorses. They, they would... They would constantly just want to be in the front so you had the one coming in front and then the next one coming past and they just would not stop for kilometers on end until your Competing legs with yeah until your legs started to cramp up um and um i eventually looked after it must have been after about four or five kilometers of just full-on gallop 
and looked over to Brett because we're neck and neck. And I was like, you need to try stop Monsoor because I can't stop Silverflake. He's like, mate, and we're shouting at each other because it's obviously going fast. And he's like, mate, I try to stop him like two kilometers back. He's not stopping. We'll just wait till we get to the fence junction. So it was, it was, um, it, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. experience. But then eventually Dubai got a bit too much, eh? Uh, the novelty wore off. Hey, I think um, there's, again, I speak about two different types of people all the time. And there's two different types of people that go into Dubai. They love the, the fake life and the artificialness and the plasticky way that is Dubai. Don't get me wrong, that's not me talking negative about it. Like, it, it's an amazing city. Um, but And then some people just, the novelty wears off after a couple of years and they want to go back to the roots. Also... You know, from a desert ecosystem point of view, there's only so much you can learn. And I felt I'd, I'd maxed out there. And uh, I came back and then took up a guiding job back in the Kruger region. And that's where I met you. That's where you met me. Just a couple of months after you came back, eh? Yeah. Yeah. You ran into me. I and did. I think we'll get into that story. At a later I think stage. maybe, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that can be your your story. And yeah, then that was that was a... I think when I came back from Dubai, I'd I'd matured to a, to a certain extent, and um, I felt that I I don't know when I got back from Dubai, I felt very different in the field. I felt yeah, just it's hard to explain, but but very different, and I I think it was just a a maturity a maturity thing that I was now you know quite a quite quite experienced in the field, had guided internationally, and um, I felt. There was there was a confidence uh, in me that I I felt was was quite strong and I, I I then went to we worked for quite a quite a good team. You were there. You knew our team. I think we were we were we were a good team and a fantastic um, lodge and a fantastic lodge, a fantastic team and fantastic uh, management. Fantastic management, <laughs> Matt and Annette. If you're listening, you guys are awesome. Um and yeah, just. Just all round awesome, and you know, again, leopard met friends that we've we still are friends with today. Absolutely, and yeah, close so friends. Where, that's where that that's where I'm. Well, we're working in the Waterberg now. With those friends, they're now yeah. managers who were just guard in front of house, and they're now running a lodge in the Waterberg. So it's amazing how everyone kind of just develops. Absolutely, moves on. and that's where. So we mentioned that's where I we met, mm-hmm. and I joined you at the lodge, and we'll get more into that. On the next episode when I tell my story. Yeah. And but we we worked there for about two years. Correct. And then we moved on to the next place and yeah. the last place. Management, yeah. We I think after guiding so many years from my point of view, I I wanted to to kind of embrace something else and I needed more responsibility. I think I was getting stagnant moving from guiding position to guiding position and yes it was almost promotion so it was going from junior guides to senior guides um and helping with the with with the guiding team itself so i was given quite a lot of responsibility at certain properties from a guiding team point of view but eventually management is the natural that's that's your goal and after all those years i wanted that was my goal and yeah we moved we moved because we got an assistant management position Yes. At um, a lodge. Uh, in, in a different part of yeah. Well, it's also great to Kruger, but amazing and super unique because I think what was from a guy, I was manager and guy, or assistant manager and guide, and what was amazing about that reserve was the quietness. There was no vehicles. Yeah. Was, you really had to work hard for your game. Worked hard for your sightings, and for those of you who have followed me on social media, um, the more recent photos. Um, of well, last year from 2021 and you looked at those photos 2020 and 2021 you would see uh, that those sightings they were all worked for quite hard um, I mean but it was once you had something I remember I spent about what about 12 hours with a single female leopard not at once at a, no no not in one draft no goodness gracious but uh, over the course of two days uh, two and a half days we spent, we found the Munzi female with her, uh, her cub, who is now an adult and named Shavinzi. But we found Munzi and Shavinzi on an impolicle that they just brought down. And it was in, in our, our traversing area and no one else was on game drive. And it was just incredible to watch 
them for two and a half days. We had the guests and we just went back to the site every single day. So for again to explain to those who don't who don't know yeah, why that is so special, it's because at a lot of the other private reserves. So in 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 Kruger in like the self drive area, you know there will be a lot of other vehicles around. So yeah. most of the time you will have you'll find something and then you'll sit there and then there'll come another vehicle drive past and see whatever you're seeing and then they'll sit there with you and sometimes you can get up uh, sightings up to like you know 10 20 vehicles which isn't great and we usually try to avoid those right in the national park itself. in the national yeah, park yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah because it's not controlled uh, because everybody's driving themselves but in the private reserves we mentioned the radios and a big thing on the radios is that you if you find something Different reserves have different rules, but if you find something, you usually uh, call it in and then you have a certain amount of time with that animal before you have to give over the sighting to the next person so that everybody can, all the guests can get to see the animal. Yeah. And, sorry, do you want to? Yeah, well, I suppose, no, you're 100%, you're spot on. Um, it's It's regulated as, you know, the person that finds it generally gets more time which is generally 20, sometimes 25 minutes because you found it. Without that person that found that sighting, there is no sighting. So they would generally get 20, 25 minutes. No one would push them out. But then everyone else would get 10 to 15 minutes mm. because you now need to cycle out, especially leopards, cheetahs, wild dog. Those those sightings are incredibly high profile sightings. So you get to, you get, um, you get to 10 minutes and then you rotate, but only two vehicles on the sighting at a time because... You don't want to pressure the animal mm. and you also don't want to, you'll get for guests if it's, you know, they're paying generally these private reserves have quite a lot of, um, you know, like high profile guests. So they're paying a lot of money to have this experience. So you don't want to have a sighting where you've got 20 cars. Uh, and uh, so generally two vehicles at a time or three in a very open area, some reserves, it's all different. But generally, the time frame is the same. And then you rotate out, next person in. And if you want to come back, you go to the back of the queue and then you come back in to see that sighting. But that's what makes that the reserve you're that talking we, about yeah. so special and how you could spend so much time with this anim- with this leopard and her cub because there was no one else out on game drive so you could sit there forever. Yeah. Like you, you had it all to yourself and you just spent the time with this animal just watching it without having to give over the sighting to someone else. Exactly. And that is a very, very special thing and yeah. very rare. It's very, very, very unique. And that's why it's a, actually a, a property that we, as our company, Wildest Kruger Safaris, um, highly are, recommend. we highly recommend it to our clients, especially our, our repeat safari clients or return return safari guests so guests that have been on safari before because uh, it's i feel that that experience is quite unique you work hard and you might not tick all the boxes but you will have an incredible safari experience it's definitely a quality over quantity correct the sightings correct. that you have when you find something you just park there and you just you watch. just watch that animal and you know it's it's an incredible experience but it's definitely quality over quantity because the chances of you seeing you know for those who've been on safari before when you see a lion for example most of the time you will see a lion and it will be sleeping 99 percent of the time and that's where it's so it's so unique to be able to sit and just wait for that lion to wake up and for the action to start happening and to maybe watch it hunt or whatever Mm. is happening next that is to be able to just sit there and wait for that to happen is very special correct so we were there for about two years we experienced covid and, mm. and lockdown and we'll probably talk more about lockdown at the lodge yeah we had an incredible time work for incredible management uh, an incredible team at uh, this last property we worked at as permanent staff but we just felt again this this little ray of stagnance and i think the permanent side of the industry had got us and we felt we we can be doing more um and something personally different. and something different and we ummed and odd and pondered and um we landed on carolina wanting to focus more on her photography which coming I'll up which she'll talk about and how you became a professional photographer and me having 10 years worth of 
experience in the guiding and lodging field and having built up quite a quite a nice clientele base over those years um, of people that I'm still in contact with. Uh, and uh, it, it was just, it was inevitable for us to to want to move on and start something ourselves. Uh, just we so also we can... got a couple of, of incredible opportunities that we wouldn't have been able to do, yeah. which we'll talk more about, that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were still permanent at a lodge job and we also we started wildest kruger quite long before we actually decided to leave the lodge industry Mm. because we the plan at first was to do it on the side yeah uh, because we realized that you know with craig's experience in the in the industry and and all that that we could really help people plan their safaris because you you knew the area so well or you know the area so well but we quickly realized that it's a lot of work running a company and it was very difficult to yeah. do so while you're permanently employed. And that's why we eventually... It was a lot of factors, a lot of different factors. But that yeah. was one of the reasons that we... Yeah. I think that was one of the main reasons as well. Yeah, that was just so overwhelming, both of them. To try to have a full-time job and, and do a business at the same time. And then we chose the the business because we yeah, felt like that was a natural next Absolutely. And here we are. Sitting here on our second episode of our podcast. Look at us. Would you have thought we would have been... <laughs> High five. Would you have thought a year ago that we would be sitting right here where we are doing this podcast? Absolutely not. A lot have happened in the past a year. A lot has happened since May last year. Wow. Yeah. No. No. No ways. <laughs> no ways. It's funny how life works, eh? Yeah. But I guess a lot of, a lot of the opportunities in life are also unexpected and a lot of the things you know where you in your career the different lodges and the different places you've been to have all been quite you know you've never expected that that's the path you were supposed to take exactly you never know what life things is. happen and you absolutely you go with the flow and you absolutely take the opportunities that gets given yeah. to you correct well guys that is pretty much my story i hope you enjoyed the second episode of our podcast wow that's an hour and five minutes i've been talking for an hour and five minutes that's amazing i am gonna be able to cut that down a little bit but yeah it's a it's a bit of a longer episode um thanks very much guys for joining us for our second episode on the wildest kruger stories next episode i'll be talking about my story and how i ended up where we are yeah i guess we're excited for that (laughs) as well okay have a great week guys cheers guys enjoy next week